This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. If I'm totally honest, I don't really know why podcasts have seasons, but we just ended season three, and we're just starting season four, so I felt like I needed to pick a big, kind of bombastic, exciting topic to kick this season off right. And so I picked a topic that's kind of ambitious, one with a backstory that most of us never hear. And what we think is true is literally pulled from the pages of a New York Times bestselling fiction. The true story about the biblical canon is actually a lot more convoluted and messy than we might think. And believe it or not, that makes it more reliable. Welcome to Christianese, Season 4, Episode 1, The Canon. It's the beginning of a new season. There's lots of new listeners. Let's take a second to get to know each other. This feels way too much like a first date. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But let's go with it. Imagine that you have to introduce yourself to someone using just different forms of media, whether it's favorite movies, a book, a poem, a song or an album, a Saturday morning cartoon, What three pieces of media would you put together to say, this best describes me? I'll give you a second. Okay, that was 15 seconds. I lied. So sue me. Oh, we're having a good time. You know, I could really see this going on for another episode, if that's something you're interested in. Maybe another season down the road. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. I'm sorry. And that's enough of date, Drew. I was feeling very uncomfortable with that. But thinking about that fun little thought experiment, it's kind of tricky to figure out how you would introduce yourself through things that other people have written. Because that is essentially what God did with the Bible. Now, it's not the same as us saying we would pick Harry Potter and Star Wars to describe ourselves, because God inspired human authors to write Scripture. But Scripture comes in a variety of genres. There's history, letter correspondences, poetry, music, law, collections of wise sayings, prophecy. And he took 66 different writings from these disparate genres and put them together in a single book that we call the Bible. And these 66 books we don't subtract from or add to. They are a set collection of works that's also called the canon. Nowadays, we typically use the word canon as a shorthand for in-universe truth. 
typically in reference to our favorite cinematic universes like Marvel or Star Wars or Harry Potter. For example, when Kevin Feige said that a young Peter Parker, Spider-Man himself, showed up in Iron Man 1, it became canon. It was in-universe truth. Whenever J.K. Rowling tweets out something about the Harry Potter universe, like what did wizards do with their poop before there was indoor plumbing at Hogwarts? Yeah, that happened. It is canon. Now, when the rest of us come up with little factoids about any sort of cinematic universe, it's a fan theory. But when the author of those universes say something, it is canon. For our purposes, if the Bible says something, it is canon in the actual universe. Because we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, his revealed truth about the universe and the way that it works. But this raises an interesting question. How did we get the Bible? Well, the story most of us heard goes like this. The Bible we have today, specifically the New Testament, was compiled in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea under the guidance of Emperor Constantine. During this council, leaders of the church had before them dozens of different writings, and they picked and chose which writings they wanted to include in the Bible. This was not simply a question of what they wanted to be doctrine, but also how they could cement and hold power within the Roman Empire. That's a nice, pretty clean, succinct story, but it's not true. Like, it's not even close to true. The Council of Nicaea was not called to decide the books of the New Testament. In fact, they never even talked about the books of the New Testament. The Council of Nicaea gathered in order to construct the Nicene Creed, which opposed very popular heresies of the day, to mandate uniform observance of Easter, which at the time was known as Pasha, and in order to spread early church laws, things like how long catechism should be and how to ordain a new bishop. Nicaea did not come up with the New Testament canon. That's a myth. That idea comes from a 9th century Greek work called the Synodicon Vetus, which claims to summarize the different church councils. A German translator named John Pappus edited and published the Synodicon Vetus in 1601 in Strasbourg. In it, he translated, quote, The council made manifest the canonical and apocryphal books in the following manner. Placing them by the side of the divine table in the house of God, they prayed entreating the Lord that the divinely inspired books might be found upon the table and the spurious ones underneath. This version of the Council of Nicaea became broadly popular during the Enlightenment period, especially when it found its way into the works of Voltaire, who, in his philosophical dictionary, uses this story as a kind of way to poke fun at and mock the church in the Bible. But since Voltaire is Voltaire, people assumed that this was the true story. And so the myth has persisted over the centuries, gaining new life and broader popular appeal in Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Now, listen to this. It's from the Gospel according to Philip. Philip? Yes, it was rejected at the Council of Nicaea, along with any other Gospels that made Jesus appear human and not divine. Dan Brown is a brilliant fiction writer, but he is a fiction writer. The myth of the Council of Nicaea is just that. A myth. So here's how we really got the Bible. Let's start with the Old Testament. 
The 39 books of the Old Testament were written in four distinct periods between 1400 and 400 BC. During each of these periods, writers were able to look back and chronicle God's works through his people, the nation of Israel. The first period was during, or right after, the Exodus, when Moses wrote the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The second period was during Israel's monarchy, the time of Saul, David, and Solomon, when writers could look back at the conquest and the settling of Israel, its theocracy, and subsequent shift into a monarchy. The third period was the fall of Jerusalem and the subsequent exile of God's people in Babylon. During this time, writers could look back on 2 Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, as well as the pre-exilic prophets. An interesting thing about this period is writers start to cite outside works to corroborate their stories. 1 Chronicles 29.29 29 talks about the chronicles of Nathan, Samuel, and Gad as outside sources. First and second kings repeatedly talk about the scrolls of the kings of Judah and Israel. The thought was, if you had questions about what was written in first and second kings or first and second chronicles, you could go to those other scrolls to corroborate the stories. The fourth and final period of Old Testament writing occurred when God's people returned from exile in Persia to the land of Israel. This is the time of Ezra the scribe and Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. By the time of Jesus, this canon was pretty much settled. First century historian Josephus wrote in his work against Appian about the Old Testament canon, saying, For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured neither to add or to remove or to alter a syllable. In the Protestant Bible, we jump directly from the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, to the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew. But in that intertestimonial period, there were a collection of books written which we collectively call the Apocrypha. These 14 books first show up in a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint, which was commissioned by the Egyptian ruler Ptolemy II sometime in the 3rd century BC. Because of their inclusion in the Septuagint, there have been discussions of whether or not the Apocrypha belongs in the Old Testament canon. But there's three big arguments against this. First, there is no record of any apocryphal books being included in any Hebrew canon. Second, neither Jesus nor any of the apostles used the Apocrypha in their teaching or writings. Third, and finally, the early church saw the apocryphal books as helpful but did not treat them as scripture and didn't go to them for doctrine. When the 4th century church father Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, he specifically separated the Apocrypha from the rest of scripture, placing some of those books in an appendix at the end of his translation. And before the Apocrypha, he wrote a preface citing that these books were helpful or ecclesiastical, but they were not doctrine or inspired scripture. Even so, the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches see many of these books as deuterocanonical, or the second canon, and include them in their Bibles. The Roman Catholic Church, for their part, didn't decide to include the Apocrypha in their Old Testaments until the Council of Trent in 1546. This late edition, which was in many ways a reaction to the Protestant Reformation, was justifiably criticized. It is now the source of Catholic beliefs that Protestants deny, like purgatory and prayer for the dead. 
Now, to be fair, the Lutheran and Anglican Bibles also include the Apocrypha. But they, like Jerome in his Latin translation of the Bible, separate them from Scripture, saying that these can be useful or ecclesiastical to read, but should not be seen as doctrinal. Since neither Palestinian Hebrew communities Jesus or the Apostles use the Apocrypha, and church fathers saw them as separate from Scripture, I really don't see the need for them to be included in the Old Testament. But it is helpful to know about the Apocrypha, and that there were other writings circulating at the time when the Bible was being put together. Which brings us to the New Testament. After the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, the church was extremely localized in Israel. But once the church started to spread, particularly under the missionary journeys of Paul, the apostles and those close to them started writing about the events of Jesus' life, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, that's right belief and right action, in light of a resurrected Savior. These histories and letters were written between 45 and about 100 AD, and churches across the Mediterranean almost immediately started copying them and sending them to other churches. These letters weren't simply seen as interesting correspondence, but as scripture. 1 Timothy 5.18 refers to the Gospels as scripture, and 2 Peter 3.16 refers to the writings of Paul as scripture. By the end of the second century, there is an early canon circulating amongst the church. So what's going on here? It's not that the church leaders are picking and choosing which books are now scripture, but in a very grassroots kind of way, the church is recognizing which books are scripture, is collecting them together, and is sharing them with one another. But this wasn't a haphazard process. What you see in the writings of church fathers like Irenaeus, Jerome, and Athanasius is that the church took a very intentional role in analyzing and scrutinizing the biblical canon. There were three primary criteria a book had to meet in order to be considered scripture. First, was this book apostolic? Was it written by an apostle or someone very close to an apostle? Second, was this book accepted by the corporate church early in church history? And third, that there are divine qualities or evidence of the Holy Spirit within the text. Now that last one can feel a little wiggly. But here's what the Old Testament tells us about the Word of God. That it is beautiful and excellent, powerful and effective, and within it there is unity and harmony. Jesus said, My sheep know my voice. And 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit allows us to understand the mind of God, things hidden and unseen by those who don't know Him. So the canon, then, is not simply a matter of human recognition, but of God showing His people His work. Of the books that were considered non-canonical, they kind of fell into two categories those which were useful and those which were false writings, or pseudepigrapha. Let's look at two books, for example, The Shepherd of Hermas and The Gospel of Judas. The Shepherd of Hermas was a broadly popular writing in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, but The Shepherd of Hermas was not written by an apostle, or anyone known by the apostles. It was popular, but it was a very contentious book. In a letter between church fathers Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, 
Clement repeatedly apologizes for liking the Shepherd of Hermas because, quote, many people despise it. And in the end, people use the Shepherd of Hermas to teach docetism and Montanism, two heterodox practices in early Christianity. So the Shepherd of Hermas was put aside. The Gospel of Judas, on the other hand, was rejected as pseudepigrapha, a falsely attested writing because it claimed to have been written by Judas and record a secret conversation he had with Jesus. But since the Gospel of Judas was written almost 300 years after the life of Christ and directly supported a heresy called Gnosticism that the church was presently struggling with, it wasn't difficult for the church to recognize it as pseudepigrapha and to leave it out of the canon. In the 3rd and 4th centuries, the church exploded in growth, but the canon did not. And in two specific meetings, the church put a stamp on the already existent canon and closed it in order to protect it from pseudepigrapha and to create uniformity in the now global church. In 393 AD at the Synod of Hippo, the bishops of the church, for the first time, made a list of those books which were undisputably canon. And at the Council of Hippo in 397, the canon was officially closed with the 27 books we have today. Ah, there it is. See what I mean when I say the myth of Nicaea is a lot cleaner than the actual history of how the Bible was put together? But the real story makes the Bible more reliable. God inspired prophets and leaders to write his word. They were tested and scrutinized and copied throughout centuries. And the church, despite her differences between East and West and nations that were warring with each other, looked at the books of the New Testament and said, We all agree that these are of God. There's one more question I have to answer. Can we trust it? People will tell you that you can't trust the Bible because it's changed over the centuries. That because it wasn't delivered to us by a golden hand through parted clouds that it can't really be the Word of God. Like the Nicene myth, that's a simple story. But it's not true. The Bible is the most attested and verifiable ancient book in existence. And as time goes on, we can be more sure that we have what was written by the original authors. For example, the King James Bible was translated with seven Greek manuscripts, the earliest of which dated to the 11th century. Today, Bibles are translated with over 5,600 Greek manuscripts the average length of which is 450 pages. We have at least one manuscript from the first century and 18 from the second century. And if we lost all of our Greek manuscripts, we could compile the Bible multiple times over simply with the works of the church fathers. What we're finding is not that as time goes on, we get further and further away from what was in the ancient manuscripts. Instead, we're finding that the more work we do, the more we're verifying the Bible. And what we have is what was meticulously passed down across the centuries, all the way back to the apostles. You can trust it. It hasn't been revised across the centuries. And the church, diverse in nation, in ethnicity, in politics, and even era of existence, looks at it and says, this is beautiful, excellent, powerful, effective, and displays unity and harmony. This is God's Word.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.